We know the difficulties facing health and social care providers around the country when it comes to workforce and rotors, which is why we're proud to have Series 4 of our podcast sponsored by Florence. Florence connects care professionals with shifts across the healthcare sector. Their app lets you fill shifts instantly at great rates, so you can focus on providing outstanding care. All the links to Florence and their socials are going to be in each episode description of this podcast series, so why not go and check them out? Hello and welcome to The Caring View, the online health and social care platform taking the UK by storm. This is series four of our podcast now. Um, You will know us from our live chat show on YouTube every Tuesday, 7.30. Go ahead and subscribe. Um, But for all of our Spotify and podcast listeners, this is where the, the meaty sort of conversations happen. Series 4 is going to be all around membership organisations in social care, understanding what responsibility um, as the social care workforce we have in our own development and what opportunities and what organisations there are out there to help further our career development, our, our personal development, and most importantly, how we can all look at improving the impact and the outcomes of people who use social care services. Who better to start off this series with than the recent CBE awardee, first of our King Charles, Nadra Ahmed of the National Care Association. Hello, Nadra. How are you? Hi. Good to be here. Nice to have you with us. And obviously, we are joined by a fabulous co-host and co-founder of the Caring View, Mark Tops. Hello, Mark. Hello. How are you both? I'm good, Mark. How are you? Yes, not too bad. Lovely to have you join us, Nadra. Oh, it's great to be here, Mark. So, and most people will know you, Nadra. Um, you are, as we say in, in social care um, circles, part of the social care royalty, as part of the, the, the sort of top of the organisations out there. Um, but for those who don't, um, and for those who might need a, a quick refresher, who are you and what do you do? Right, so I'm... Um... Uh, you know my name. Uh, uh, my role in social care is um, as the executive chairman of the National Care Association, um, and I've held the position for a considerable number of years. I think coming on for two decades now, but the exec bit is um, um, only about eight years. Um, I was a care provider um, and and had um, uh, control of two. Uh, care services, one quite large and one quite small. Uh, And I would say this, wouldn't I, but the smaller one was my kind of favourite because I knew um, everything that went on in there, 20 beds, you know, it was just amazing and just walking in and um, like a massive big family. And I think in the larger one, we tried to do that as well because we had three different parts of the home where you could could kind of be little families, but then you also came together, but it was, it was much larger. Um, so I did start on the on the ground floor. I was the um, the cook, the cleaner, the you know bottle washer, whatever you know, whatever doing day day shifts, night shifts, um, catering, um, and absolutely. That um, said, so that was forty two years ago now. Um, started from the kind of uh, from the bottom, if you like, um, in some ways, but actually did all the key jobs, which is where they were. Uh, making sure uh, everything was happening. Um, but also during the day was running that care service uh, as the registered manager. So so um, 
very early on, I realised that the one thing that was missing was um, the education bit in it. So my background is in education. I I was a, um, a, a university lecturer, so that that's that was my kind of day job. Um, but came into social care purely by accident because um, my father-in-law bought a home and thought, well, you can run it. So so that was uh, not having any experience, but always loving the fact that I used to have long conversations. Um, my uh, uh, my degree is in history, so I kind of like listening to what happened in the past, people's kind of uh, views and thoughts. Um, and, and and I think that's where it just I mean it was a it was it was a passion. It became a, a passion quite quickly. Um, uh, loving that working on the floor, but also having that control of of how we change things at that time. And in the 80s, what you have to remember when I kind of first opened the service was we didn't take people who were incontinent. We didn't take people who were unwell. We didn't take nursing. So we took, you know, we, we took people who were uh, who just didn't want to live alone anymore. And they would come into our service and we would support them on that basis. Of course, you know, 40 years on, you, you kind of fast forward and we're in, in, in the midst of running mini hospitals. Um, uh, so I'm also, uh, I'm, I'm, um, I'm in control of care services where I am. I chair um, uh, part of a uh, voluntary organize large voluntary organisations um, plan, and I've you know taken it from being a, a small nursing home to dementia specialist home. We've got a village. We kind of work in there. We've also got supported living and everything else, but it's for veterans. So, so my hands-on experience is still there. So that's that's sort of really the background in a, in a snapshot. The role I have is, I mean, it is a huge privilege, actually, to, to be in this position because um, we've got some amazing um, national bodies that do different things. So we've got people who represent the corporate sector, the not-for-profits, the dom care sector, the nursing care sector. And and what National Care Association does is we take all of, all of uh, that. We have learning disabilities. We have... Um, people with um, sheltered housing and what what happens is that people have innovated and expanded and so they they retain the membership and we try and support them uh, as much as we can but primarily national care associations um, role is to support the small to medium-sized providers so them so the, the ones that, that that have got their own money on the line you know they've got a mortgage they've got a loan uh, and, and and we're sort of, um, if you like, in a way, it's the AA bit, you know, we, we're there when they need us uh, and we try and support them uh, with, with the latest information, the latest news, all of those sorts of things. And that that's the role that we've evolved into. A National Care Association was one of the first associations ever to be formed. So we are the most established Um of all the care associations and we've just evolved as we've gone on from um you know from being national care homes association just looked after homes to now being national care association which looks after everything thank you very much i think i'm definitely looking forward to exploring more about the association through this interview and i think listening to you there the cook the cleaner and everything in between reminding us all all of us that work in social care, that it's a never-ending job description that we do on the front line. 
You mentioned you've been with the National Care Association for two decades. What made you want to work for the association in the original days or in the early days? What makes me want to what? Sorry, Mark. What made you want to join there in the early days? Oh, well, I mean, I think it was quite simple because we were a, we were a, um, a, a one single care home. And um, believe it or not, um, in even in those days, in the mid to um, late 80s, we had issues around funding of social care. Uh, so it's never really gone away as an issue. And that was, you know, before the Community Care Act and all of that. Um, and there was a local association, the Kent Care Homes Association, which was one of the first established uh, of all the associations. And um, I, I just went along to a couple of the meetings and thought, well, I, you know, I, I really liked the fact that there was support, that I wasn't alone. I wasn't the only one going through some of the challenges of, uh, of what was going on at that time. We At that time, what started to happen was... Um, uh, some of the long-stay hospitals were beginning to close down and they were looking to place people into uh, social care uh, with small packages of funding. Um, and and some of those conditions were quite complex. There was some mental health, there were some physical uh, needs. And I think we were all in, in, in the county trying to see how best we could support the then sort of... Um, uh, for want of a better word, they were they, they were asylums where people had been sent, but actually didn't need to be there. They were just they didn't fit into a program uh, or a family unit, so they were put into these services. So I then started to work with that to try and um, rehabilitate, if you like, some some. There, there were a huge number in Kent where they. There were there were these facilities, and I worked with the NHS then, um, and and tried to make sure that we could do that. We started supporting some people in our home, and what I you know very quickly came became obvious that social care didn't have a structure. We didn't have any training. We didn't have anything. We you know this is all pre NBQ, and so because of my educational background, I started to look at very basic training. You know what do you need when somebody comes to the front door? And you want to start them off as a carer. You know, it was things like, um, and, and and people who've been in care for a long time will remember this. And the new ones will think, well, that can't be right. But, you know, it was things like how to give somebody a bath. You know, what do you need to remember? I was doing all that kind of stuff, you know, and make sure the towels are in the in the bathroom, all about, you know, checking the temperature. Literally a step-by-step -step training plan. Um, and that was then adopted by the Kent Care Homes Association because they sort of said, oh, that looks like something we could use. We then moved on. And then obviously when NBQ was being to, um, uh, uh, coming to fruition, I got thrown into that sort of kind of national arena of um, looking at what, what that might look like um, from the social care perspective. But of course, we've gone through so many iterations of it now. Uh, and, you know, we've got um, we've got training sort of coming out of our ears in, in, in many ways, but we're actually looking at highly skilled training that in that day we wouldn't even have thought about because actually it was something that the nursing element would take over. There were long-stay geriatric wards, and as they started to close those down, of course, that all shifted again. And then you got the Community Care Act, um, and, you know, that, that push towards people being at um, in their own homes. Um, so I said I did have a domiciliary care service as well. 
for a period of time with a partner. I then sold out to the partner. And the reason for that was because I found it really, really difficult going into somebody's home and supporting them and then leaving them, you know, at seven o'clock at night, knowing they wouldn't see anybody for the whole of that night. And I, I was spending longer doing that than I was actually meant to. And, you know, it became... It wasn't what I wanted to see. It wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, because leaving somebody in their own home, on their own, when you know the next time they see somebody, it's really, really difficult. And I take my hat off to all the people who do home care because that passion of... You know, people don't have a fall when you're there. People might have a fall later. And if you go in the next day, that's the bit that's really scary, isn't it? That you then start to blame yourself for what didn't I do right? What didn't I, you know, what happened? Um, being called in the middle of the night. I mean, I was giving people my home number and people were ringing through the night saying, um, yeah, I've just had a knock on the door. I've just had a knock on the door. I'm really scared. And you can't go back to bed. You've got to go and have a look at what you're doing. So I think I became overly involved was what my husband said. <laughs> so I kind of came out of it. Home care really is a difficult um, uh, ball game when you think about it compared to, um, you know, statutory care where the whole stationary care where it takes place in, in just one place. And I'm an ex-home care provider. Mark's an ex-home care provider. Mark's, you know, still works in the community um, in his current role. And it really is difficult, um, you know, thinking that actually the next time you see them, they may, they may no longer be living. You know, it's one of those where you could really open the door up onto anything each single day and that level of autonomy, that level of loan working brings its own risk. And really, as to the the idea that Sushka is a skilled workforce, you know, we are a skilled workforce and we need to be seen as such. Um, so, your members, NCA, um, what sort of benefits do they get from being a part of the association? So I'm thinking, you know, we're, we're now in a world post-COVID and we've all sort of got to grips with technology, yes, Zoom now charges again, and Teams is bringing in new charges, so people are, again, capitalising on it. But we are used to this sort of post-COVID living. Um, so what are the benefits that they get now from the NCA, and how have things changed post-COVID? Well, I think post-COVID, it's been interesting, because through COVID, we were doing kind of weekly meetings with our members, and um, and and the take-up was really good. Um we were sending out lots and lots of information for them because, as you know, uh, as you well know, we kept getting guidance that kept being changed. So we had to be sending it out, you know, middle of the night because it came out on a Friday night. I won't talk about that now. But now we were still wet, basically, weren't we? It was ridiculous. <laughs> it was just, it was just a bit of a nightmare, and I think it was. Um, I think for them to have somebody on tap, um, you know, answering phone calls when they were desperate and, and some of the calls we got at that time very much were that I mean I, I think well to answer the question succinctly we are quite a personal service that's that's what we are so you do get somebody at the end of a phone trying to support you and we try and get back to people as quickly as we can and sometimes it's a minor thing I mean I had one recently where somebody um had sent in uh, uh, something saying that they had um Somebody had come to work with uh, very long, false nails. 
and they needed to do a risk assessment on it. I mean, you know, it's not something you kind of get every day, is it? Um, but, you know, very long and they, they were worried about it and all of that. So we, we then, you know, looked at what the implications were, what we could do to advise the person. But that was important for that person at that time. And then you'll get another call from somebody who says, I've just had CQC come back and they've given me, um, you know, X number of days and I'm going to go into special measures. So the, the, the breadth of that sort of advice that we give is amazing in that, you know, we've got a really good group of people um, who work with it. We also have a board that are care home providers and they're very hands-on. So they will also take on um, some of the queries and give individual support if it's in their area. So that happens quite a lot. So it is very, very personal service because the smaller providers need that personal service. They haven't got HR departments. They haven't got a finance department. You know, when they're putting things together for a tender, they want to be supported um, in doing that. So I think that really um, is key. But part of our membership is also that we have a, a, a great sponsorship um, uh, uh, team. We've got a sponsorship board works really well with us and they give us all sorts of information and support so some of them are lawyers insurance banks we've got everything around the table um and and so they work with us quite a lot to give as much support as they can and they will individually support our members as well so so that network is quite big we also have uh, regular updates that go out um so uh, you know, breaking news. I think what we find is that we can go into overload with that because provide smaller providers just haven't got the time to read all of it. So, uh, so the lady who does that is very clear about how we we only send out a little bit of information on a daily basis, so that it's bite sized unless it's something earth shattering that they you know need to to put out straight away. So I think that that works. We have our own kind of DBS service. We we support people. And through COVID, we were one of the very few DBS services that actually kept the charges very, very low. Many of them. Um, so we we charge what DBS charged with a small admin fee, um, whereas others kept it at the levels that they kept it. Uh, and they continue to do that. And so, so we are... We're here really to try and make life as easy as we possibly can. We also do, we do webinars. We do webinars with our sponsors. Uh, people can uh, watch them a bit like yours. I watch them at any time that they want to, to give them support. So we've got one this week on the um, Harper Brazel case. So that, you know, that may have an impact on some people. Others may not want to be bothered with that at this stage. It's not their cup of tea, so they won't join. Um, but we'll do something, you know, on a regular basis. So we have somebody who, you know, it, it deals with all that kind of information, puts the webinars on with us. So, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's very busy, even though it sounds very quiet right now. But it's very busy. It's because I've told them they can't they can't make too much noise. <laughs> they're probably all whispering down the phones, giving advice. Yeah, they're all whispering, to giving advice, <laughs> and, and the members are going. <laughs> I think. You know, Adam and I get so many managers contact us with questions and usually they're small and medium um, care home providers because like you said, they don't have that in, in-house HR facility. So I can only imagine kind of the amount and the volume of calls that you and your team team are getting. What role does technology play within your organisation and how do you leverage it to improve member experiences? I, I, I can only hear a little bit of what you're saying, Mark. I'm really sorry. About the managers, 
Yeah. What role does technology play in your organisation? Technology. I I, th- I think it is important. We, 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 we've evolved, haven't we? And I think COVID has made it even more so, hasn't it? And, and, and I think there was a debate going on over the Easter weekend about um, technology. And I think it, it's probably quite a good one to share with you today that, that we, with members. Um, where, so we, we're trying to get people to understand what the benefits of technology are and how it supports them to spend less time filling in papers, use proper technology so that you've got more time with your residents. That's the kind of ethos of it, you know, that the more you can do um, and, and get out of your office, the better it is. And a lot of smaller providers have, have, have jumped at that. But there is also this kind of, it's expensive. It doesn't always go right. You know, it can take, staff can be... So, uh, I've done a talk on this uh, a little while ago and I use the third um, uh, theory that I have, which is a third of, resi- uh, of your staff will really embrace technology. A third will come to it a little bit kicking and screaming and a third will just say, I don't really want to do this. And although they'll try and do it, it'll cause them issues. So we're trying to bring people along. What was interesting about this discussion was that one of the providers said that they, they'd got all this you know, um, uh, they've got their care plans, digital and all of that updating. They got a CQC um, inspection and the inspection didn't like it. The inspector didn't like it because they couldn't understand how it all worked. And so they wanted paper copies of everything instead of going through the digital. So so I think, I, I, I think it's a really important thing, Mark. I really do. I think we've got to move it forward. But we've also got to all be at the same pace when we're doing this because otherwise it defeats the object. And we can see the benefits of it. And when I hear about things like, you know, the cyber attacks, and we did a, we did a webinar quite quickly about the cyber attacks and insurance companies, because we're very lucky we've got one of our sponsors is a big insurer, just try to get everything in one place so that a provider, a sole provider with a 20 or 30 bedded home can embrace it, bring their staff along with it, get the benefits of it for their service. But then they've also got all these external stakeholders who need to be part of it, whilst you also work with the fact that there is a huge risk attached if you're not cyber safe. So, so, you know, there are there are lots of steps to go through, but it's got to be the way forward. I'm not sure how convinced I am about robots delivering care. I think I'd still like a warm hand if I was in that position to hold my hand rather than a robot. But, you know, I mean, I think when you look at care plans and things, it's, you know, we're, we're leaps ahead of where we were. You know, gone are the days where you used to write in the notebook to tell the next member of staff what, what had happened through the day. People can I'm, them. I'm a little at a loss on, on digitization. On one hand, I see it as this huge benefit to social care. I see it as something that's going to revolutionize the sector. On the other hand, I see it as a load of money-hungry tech companies who see social care ripe for the picking and want to go, well, we've got something that can help innovate. And what I see the government doing is forcing sort of um, compliance over competency 
So, yay, 80% DSCRs are in, in place in care homes across the country. But like you've just said, unless you know how to really use the system, you go from one tick box exercise to another. So there's definitely something around making sure people are fully compliant. And I agree. I mean, I've got a robot sat next to me that's going to be coming up in a future thing for the, uh, for the care in view. I, I, I do think there is a limitation on what technology can do for people. Um, but I mean, you know, when we were a care home, we used to use robotic animals and they provided like that sense of comfort on a 24 hour basis for someone say end of life in bed and that warm fat purring and that sort of company. Um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot to discuss um, around technology. With so much going on now, so we've got a number of membership organizations, we've got trade shows which seem to be happening on a weekly basis almost nowadays in, in the sector. How are you finding bringing the members in? So you're, you're saying you know, you're here to represent SMEs, 80% of the care home sector are SMEs, 75% of home care are SMEs. Um, how are you finding connecting with them? Um, is there any issues? Do you have any barriers connecting with providers? Because um, engagement is also a historic issue in social care, isn't it? We always struggle to engage with providers. I, I, I think the face-to-face -face is definitely a struggle. There's no doubt about it. You know, with a small provider to attend one of the events, um, they have to see what happens in their service on the day. With larger providers, they'll have somebody else who can manage the situation on the day. So, I mean, I think that's where it becomes really difficult. I think post-COVID, what we've noticed quite a lot is that getting people away from their base is a challenge. Getting providers away from their base is a bit of a challenge. We've started to put on our regional events again. Um, before COVID, we used to have an... Actually, the day COVID was announced, we had our national event in London. So uh, we remember it well. We were in London at the Hilton um, and we had um, our national uh, conference on the day with all these kind of great speakers there. Um, and, of course, the news broke and James Bullion was one of our speakers and he said, I'm going to have to go because I've, there's a special meeting going on. Um, and he said, but I'll come back and I'll, uh, and I'll, so it was, it was a real live thing going on. So, you know, at, at that time we could get 100, 120, 150 people in a room. Now that's really difficult. I think people are using the trade shows as the place to go, but even there, the footfall I notice is much smaller than it used to be. I don't know whether you, I know met you both at different trade shows and, and I just feel the footfall isn't as great as it was would you say that was fair or i think that's fair and i think i don't know i, I just wonder whether we were oversaturating them with knowledge oversaturating them with events and everyone in social care and you know i can say this quite confidently now i'm no longer a registered manager is time poor money poor and actually in their own mental health space poor within their own sort of work-life balance so I just worry that sometimes we're adding so many events and so many things to people, like you say, keeping it bite-sized, that they're drowning in knowledge and drowning in connections and then can't actually do the day job. And and how do you how do you sort of as the National Care Association, how do you overcome that? Well, I think I think one of the things you that 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 we um some of the feedback that I've had when I've been at the shows is that everybody's trying to sell you something. The speaker bit is different, isn't it? The knowledge base. But then but then people were saying to me, we can hear that it's sitting in our own homes, actually. We can hear that. Um, I come off very badly in this because they all know what I'm going to say in a way because they've seen me say it so many times. Um, so so I, I kind of um, say what I'm thinking. I'm, I, 
I'm, you know, I don't hide very much. So there isn't going to be earth shattering information that comes out of my mouth when you're in a session with me. It'll be uh, pretty much what you'd, you'd want me to be saying, because I get my baseline from my membership. And I, that is where, and that's why for me, the role that I have is so important because it is on the ground. I, you know, my, 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 my best events are face-to-face -face where if I've got 20 people in a room, I think it's a success because I can speak to 20 different people about their experiences. And I really, you know, I really like that. Uh, when you've got 100 people in a room, you're never going to get around all of them. So I'm not one of these people that worries about the numbers of people that come in. It's the quality of the conversation that makes a difference. And if a manager has come all that way to an event, you want to be able to find out how they're feeling, what they want out of it, what they're doing. And for me, that is, uh, that is the kind of face-to-face -face bit webinars are great we can all talk to each other or we can have a conversation I'm, you know our style is very different in the one we had in Dartford recently we had um, you know people like William Lang were there and um, Deborah Sturdy were there and all of that and, and if you went to London to see them you'd be paying 200 quid for a conference thing we did it very differently it was affordable for our, our, our members but what we also um, felt was that we didn't ask people to give speeches. We had conversations. So we were questioning them on the, a bit like you, what you're doing because it's much more natural. So you'll get the information. You'll get the information that they want to give you. But actually, it was more about understanding how they derived at whatever they derived at. Um, and uh, we had great feedback because, you know, people like Deborah were saying to our members, I want to come to your home. I haven't been to an SME. Um, I haven't been to enough SMEs because, of course, the invitations always come from the larger providers who can kind of make that happen. Smaller provider, it's a little bit more difficult. I think listening to you and Adam, I would, I would fully agree that the footfall in the live events has definitely dropped. And I guess everything's recorded, you know, UK Care Week was recorded, you know, Health Plus Care will be recorded. So I guess if you're time poor or you can't attend, you know that actually you can catch it up. It's a bit like, you know, the podcast that we do, you can catch up in your own time. Any online events are normally recorded for later on. Um, and it's interesting you say about 20 people is a success. And I, I would agree in these times. And I think the positive, though, of smaller numbers of people in person is that actually allows managers to have a more personalized experience because i think sometimes you might have a question and there's a room for you, you think oh actually i won't ask that because you don't want to look yeah. silly or or they, they just don't get around to asking you so actually you know i think there are positives from that what um what strategies have you found that have been effective in acquiring new members because you obviously must acquire some that see your online events advertise and think oh, actually i'll i'll log on and see that and then they think oh, actually i'll have a look at membership that route are there any other strategies that you found that helps and how do you retain your members well i think i think um i think strategies is you know it, it, very difficult to answer that question in the way that you don't have a we don't have um we don't have strategic targets you know we've got somebody who looks after membership and she's been doing that for a long long time we uh, you know try and support her in the way that 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 all of that works we tend to retain most of our members um and i think 
when we do lose them, what we've started to see is small to medium-sized providers is going to be one of those challenges that we know where people are going out of business. They just cannot. So, so we're seeing home closures through our membership where somebody is no longer joining because they've either sold to a larger provider or they're, they're um, uh, uh, they, they've um, closed the service and sold sold the house or whatever it was that they had. So this, you know, so we've got to be mindful of that. I think the question around how do we um, strategically um, try and recruit members, we tend to find, generally speaking, if I've said something, there'll be a number of inquiries that will come in. It's more about the presence. If one of our, our board members has been on something, there'll be something that will go out. Um, press releases always kind of get people's attention and they think, oh, well, didn't, you know, didn't didn't get that. We don't actually do cold calling as such. You know, we I remember about, it must have been about 20 years ago um, when I was the chair of Kent Care Homes Association at that time, we took somebody on to go to recruit members. And actually he did a fabulous job. And um, he, uh, it was, he was paid on, on uh, results. And I think he got an additional 200 members um, through the door. That was a very different time. I think now I feel like a lot of people can get a lot of the information. So, so something like what we're doing right now, you don't have to be a member of an association to access this, do you? It's not, you haven't got, it's not no, much. Uh, no, 100%. We've, we actually don't hold a database on anyone who accesses any of our resources or episodes or anything, yeah. Yeah, so, 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 so I mean, I think, you know, so you can get the information. You don't have to belong to something in order to do that. The only thing that I feel quite strongly about, I'm a great advocate of, of um, belonging to something. Um, and, and, and I... You know, wherever I speak, you'll hear me say about local associations. It's a really important part of the infrastructure. More because your support, it's in an area that you're all going to be and you can talk to each other. You can also, if you collectively get together, go to your local authority and, and, and be strategic about what the asks are for social care for in your particular area. From the national body perspective, I think it is important um, if you feel so inclined to be part of the voice of the national body when it comes to policy making, uh, and and I think if if people feel somebody asked, I think again this was over the weekend. Somebody said, you know, there's these pay deals going on and negotiate. Who's negotiating for the social care sector? And and it was a direct question to 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 NCA. We've got to manage expectations. We can't, we cannot say that we could get you more fees. We can empower you. We can give you enough information about what's going on. You know, for me to be able to say, look, and I, I'm, I'm just picking these out of my head, so please don't look them up. <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, um, somewhere in the Midlands is paying £700 a week and somewhere in the South is paying, you know, 400 pounds a week 
we can share that information so that people can then get in touch with each other. We can support them to talk about what they're doing differently. How is that working? And that's the role of, of an association. An association has to be there. By the very term, it's a trade body, is to empower people to feel valued, but also to feel they have a voice. Because without that, if you don't feel that you've got a voice, why would you do anything? Why would you join anything? Exactly. And I suppose, yeah, no, I mean, 100%. And it is, I mean, we've spoken, and I think everyone knows, social care is heavily fragmented anyway. So to have a unified voice just adds that extra power. I mean, I would go further and say that it's also a, a sort of sense of accreditation as well, isn't it? You know, for people who, you know, become part of your service, part of your workforce, come and live with you, people you support, you go, well, look, we're a part of this national association. This is our investment into increasing our knowledge, into increasing our sort of learnings. And this is how we're going to support and, and benefit you more and, and, and benefit you further. I just want to ask you a quick question before we do move on to um, an, a, a, another question. It's just a follow up on this. Do you think there is longevity in SMEs in social care? Or do you think we are going to see this 20% of large organizations operating in the sector grow and grow and grow until SMEs are priced out? Because cost of living crisis, fair cost of care is not going to happen anytime soon. Government funding's getting halved and slashed and no one's actually really fully committing. It's becoming increasingly difficult for SMEs to survive. What's longevity, do you think? Well, I, th I think, um, you know, we've been written off many times, small providers, you know, over the years, over the 40 years that I've been in business, um, you know, I've had battles with directors of social services who, who keep telling me that there's no future for social care, uh, small providers, you know, they're going to have to get with the programme. Um, I, I remember a very heated meeting with um, a director of social services at Canterbury um, uh, Cricket Ground um, and... Uh, you know, it, that was 30 years ago when he said there won't be any small providers in 10 years' time. I, I, I just think there will. I think there is longevity in it, but I think that's because people like that small local business to be around. What we don't have at this moment in time is a business model that can be completely sustainable as a model for a smaller, uh, for an SME. And I think that's the challenge because as an SME, when we were running services, we had no mortgage, we owned the properties. So we, we didn't have that pressure on us. I think people have come into the business, they've got massive loans. COVID has put people into a really financial precarious position. Um, and it is a battle because fees have not kept up with them. And that's where the, the risks and the danger are. And I remember saying to that director of social services, if you want the corporate model, then you deserve it. And that wasn't me being all nasty about corporate models. It's because once you get to that stage, then they're going to be beholden to that corporate model and have to pay that fee. And when we closed our smaller home, um, I remember the residents, in our, I mean, it, it, was, it was traumatic. It's a horrible thing to have to do. But I remember the residents um, in our service. Firstly, we had relatives and residents sitting down with us after we'd actually announced that we were going to close, saying to us, well, what can we put some money in to keep you open? I mean, it was just so awful because they didn't want to lose their home. It was a beautiful care home in the middle of um, 
uh, it was a grade two listed building. Both both our homes were listed buildings. But the irony was, I was asking for another £25 for the local authority. They wouldn't pay it. I couldn't, the, the business model wasn't working. Um, and agency costs were the reason, actually. That was what, what did for us, uh, because it was a very rural setting. But what the irony of it was, the direct, every director in our locality rang me and said, what can we do to keep you open? I said, it's too late now because we've now closed. But I'd asked you for £25 per person as an increase. Um, and I wasn't taking just private people because I have a view about that. And it's a very strong view that um, um, it's a bit of a socialist view. But, but, but I didn't want to become elite. I, I don't want somebody who lives down the road from my care home not be able to afford to come to my care home because they would be local authority funded but somebody who lives two villages away could come in it, it just didn't sit right with me so I think you know that 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 was a problem but they had to pay 80 pounds more per person to the homes they went to and it's, yeah it's crazy and, and in a world of top-up fees which you know, make it increasingly difficult, especially, you know, if you are state funded for a family members to then try and find that top up fee to, to sort of foot the bill. It just gets, it gets so difficult. And oh, I mean, let's not open up the can of worms. That is so. No, no. That's just a personal kind of reception yeah. on something that the irony is that people cannot see the risks and the dangers and the impact on those individuals. And when we did our closure, we made sure that every resident that went out of our building, the homes that they went to, a carer went with them. So the carers were employed by those homes. That was negotiating that I did in order that they had a, a face that they knew. Yeah. And they actually settled really well, really quickly because of that. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a situation that not many people want to be in, and unfortunately, if, if things go the way they are, there's going to be eighty percent of the sector going through that. Um, so, National Care Association (NCA) clearly works with other smaller organisations, um, other care associations. You've got your corporate partners and your corporate sponsors. What benefits have you seen from those partnerships, and what benefits have your members seen um, from those partnerships? From the partnerships of the um, from all your sort of cross organisational working, um, so whether that be working with I don't know smaller local authority, local uh, care associations, or with your corporate partners. Well, what I mean, I, I think what what um, uh, what I think is great uh, is is that 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 we all um, we, we're eleven organisations in, in in the care provider alliance that come together on a weekly basis which I currently chair. And the ethos of that is to, to, to agree on what is important. And all the CEOs around our table have the same issues and we work with, through the same challenges. We come from slightly different directions. And actually it's important to recognize differences, but it's more important to recognize what we all have in common so uh, on that cpa group we've also got the care um uh the uh, caa so the the local association network we've got mental health we've got shelter housing we've got corporates we've got not-for-profits home care you know the whole whole shebang nursing homes 
these are very powerful people in their own organizations. But actually, when we come together, we have a great, um, uh, we have a very united approach to where we're going. So if we're going to see a minister, we will talk to each other about what we're going to say, what we're going to say and what our priorities are going to be. So we, we support each other through that, I think. What people do in their own organisation, what they put out, we might not agree with that, but there is a common approach to that. Um, and I'm very clear since I've been in the chair that we, we, we respect each other's views, but we also respect the differences. You know, so I'm always going to fight to the SMEs. That's going to be what I do. That is my role. Um, Martin will always fight for the corporates because that's what he does. And and Vic will fight for the um, for, for the not-for-profits and Ian will fight for nursing homes. You know, the whole, we're all there together. Uh, and Jane, so they're specialists in their field. We have to acknowledge that and recognise that as to being where they are. I can come in with something on a very ground level because I've spoken to a provider myself and I can I can come through that. That united front, I mean, I think I, I get really worried about um, uh, the term that gets used about us being fragmented, disunited, all of those sorts of things. If you actually got us all in a room, you would be surprised at how common the issues and responses are that you get. Um, so somewhere like at NCA, where we don't have a huge staff group, we don't have policy officers coming out of homes, we don't have you know, marketing people, we don't have all of that. We have a small team of dedicated staff who do everything that they can, but the focus is the residents, the the, the family, uh, the providers that we support, because that has a direct impact on the quality of the services people have. So we we come from different um, uh, different bases potentially, but actually the goal is the same. That is to get better funding for our uh, for our residents, uh, for our providers, better funding empower them to have the, the, the powerful conversations and not be afraid but, uh, and to support their workforce in the best way that they possibly can because we know that's the risk and that's the danger we're also very used to people telling us what we want to hear you know so we can all roll our eyes at the same time i mean you'd get that in unison we could write a musical to that You spoke about your united approach um, and it's being one of your goals, which brings us nicely into our last question for you. So looking ahead, what are your goals for your organisation over the next couple of years? Um, and what steps have you got in place at the moment to achieve them? Well, I, I think the United Voice is, 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 has always been one of my goals, that we, we continue to speak with one voice and come together as much as we can. Um, and I think National Care Association's um, primary vision is about making sure that we support um, providers individually and collectively. I think it's a very difficult term to use, but, but every issue that comes into our service is seen as specific to that provider. We don't have a generic response to everything because things are very different. And I think this is something that we use um, in the in the national arena when people say to us, well, how can somebody um, 
charge, you know, £1,500 somebody uh, be able to survive on 700 It's the business models are very different. So you have to treat everybody very differently. So my team are very keen and we're, we're always very keen. The board, we're very keen on making sure that we don't, we don't create boxes of how we would go forward. We will move with the times, you know. They have brought me kicking and screaming to, you know, to, to, to digital because I'm, I don't understand it. I don't have to work my phone and anything else. But, but I, you know, one of our members said um, that, that um, he'd got a, a, a program and he wanted me to come and have a look at it. I went to have a look at it. It was rocket science to me because it, it just made everything so much easier. Whereas if I hadn't gone to have a look at it. So then it's about that person trying to explain to other providers what to do. And that's what we want to do is to spread that sort of around so that we demystify things for the smaller providers who do not, um, that might not be their strength. Finance might be their strength or they were a nurse and they might, so care might be their strength, whatever their strength is. And I think that that is important. Um, what I'd like to see is that when, you know, I'd like to have um, uh, support around me from, um, my succession, I think that's really important for me to know that there'll be somebody that can come in with new ideas, with new thoughts, with new plans, new programs um, to take National Care Association forward. You know, having been uh, around for uh, over 40 years, it's a very different world to the one 40 years ago when the associations were set up. And we've got to make sure that we're fit for the future. And I think digital, which you mentioned, Mark, is really important that we we embrace it and we try and work with it to make sure that it enhances the um, the benefits of the people we care for. The people we care for are very different, and we have to keep moving with that. And and the other kind of passion that I have, and that this probably is because of my um, educational background, is that I want to see our workforce valued, respected, and paid properly. Um, uh, and I'm just doing a response to a government um, document today. Uh, and I find myself consistently putting in there that, that social care needs to be valued. ICBs are not the answer that I can see. We're not at the table. Our staff are not, they're doing the same job, but they're not being paid the same job. They're not on a spine. They're not why is it so hard to get a qualification agenda for our sector? I don't understand it. I don't understand yeah. how on it. I think they're all um, sort of fantastic sort of visions uh, moving forward. And I think, you know, that's the sort of unified belief that many in social care want. It's just that value, respect, you know, please just listen to us. You know, we're not talking about being professionalised where everything's got to be academic degree-wise, but we are a professional workforce. We are a skilled workforce. By the definition, if someone can do something and someone else can't, it's a skill. And there are many people in social care who do a lot of things that many other people cannot do. Um, and pound for pound, compared to the NHS, we're the biggest employer in this country. Absolutely. And we've put back into the economy. We're, you know, we contribute over, I think it's over 50 um, billion into the economy. Yeah, that's skirted over. They yeah. take money out of our budgets, but just think of how much we're putting back in. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say, fully support succession planning. Succession planning is everything that everyone should be doing in everyone's business. If you're not going to be in one day, your organisation still needs to run. Absolutely. 
not it's not about one thing. early retirement announcement nadra from you know <laughs> talking about your succession plan in there i was like oh <laughs> I, I just i just feel like no organization and i i, I say this to my team and, my, and to my board all the time you know if if it, it shouldn't be reliant on me being there for it to continue and you know my board get a bit worried sometimes when I talk about it but I think the reality is you've got to have enough people in situ who can take that role on yeah. so that, that when the time comes you, you do it or you want to push your CEO out and you do it then <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose that's why you know I'm so attracted to the whole leadership and management side of things because if a manager says to me oh nothing gets done while I'm away I yeah. instant red flag for me there well why why is the thing getting done? You can't go away and then come back and do your work while you were there and the work takes now. Something needs to change. Look, Naja, absolutely fantastic to um, speak to you again. And, you know, a great way to open up this this series on uh, membership organisations and, and the sector as a whole. How can we evolve is social care? Um, I know you don't like the term, unf uh, you know, fra uh, unfragment or, uh, sorry, fragmented. We all have a unified voice. We all have a unified vision. It's just how do we connect the dots? How, how we bring it together. Yeah, and how do we bring it together? It's um, having respect to each other. I mean, what you two do is amazing in, in, in the world that you operate in. And you have to respect all of that, don't you? To yeah. That everybody out there is making a difference. You guys are making a difference as well as, yeah. as anybody else who's making a difference. In You know, you put yourself forward to do something and you do it well. That makes a difference because it inspires people. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Uh, this has been um, The Caring View. Mark, have you any final parting words of wisdom before we go? No words of wisdom, but I do just want to say thank you very much, Nadra, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And like Adam said, a great way to open our, our new series. Oh, it's, so... it's been great. Chatting to friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Definitely. Like-minded, uh, chewing the cud, all that sort of stuff, all the other sayings that you could possibly think of. Uh, so don't forget www.thecaringview.co.uk. You can access our podcast, our chat show, and all of our free resources directly from that website. Nothing will ever cost you a penny. Um, our episodes go live on Mondays for our podcast. Um, this is now June when you're listening to this, which is quite exciting. Halfway through the year, almost time for Christmas. Um, our chat show goes live every single Tuesday and don't forget we have our freebie Fridays as well. We have a LinkedIn newsletter so please do subscribe to that and you will get more information through that. But until next time, thank you so much, take care and stay safe. We know the difficulties facing health and social care providers around the country when it comes to workforce and rotors, which is why we're proud to have Series 4 of our podcast sponsored by Florence. Florence connects care professionals with shifts across the healthcare sector. Their app lets you fill shifts instantly at great rates, so you can focus on providing outstanding care. All the links to Florence and their socials are going to be in each episode description of this podcast series, so why not go and check them out?